Irvine, California, early 90s. Five teenage boys lope along a rough dirt path. A warm wind blows across their sweaty backs as they will themselves through their cross-country track practice. In the jumble of high school, these boys have found each other, though you wouldn't necessarily think to put them together. Three of them are religious, two are atheists. A couple drink and do drugs. Others won't even touch coffee. But they're all socially awkward, and they all like to see themselves as free thinkers. So they bond while racing through the Southern California brush, then hashing over their ideas and opinions. They happily spar with each other. They like that they're different, that they have conflicting views. It's part of what makes their friendship great. Jump ahead 25 years. They're still in touch online, and they're still very different. One's a lawyer for Exxon in Dubai. Another works for Al Jazeera. There's a Bay Area tech entrepreneur, a Florida warehouse manager, and a special ed teacher in Texas. It's 2016, and the election campaign is in full swing. And it's getting ugly. Crooked Hillary Clinton. Oh, she's crooked, folks. She's crooked as a $3 bill. Lock her up is right. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. In an online conversation, the five friends let it all out. From July to November, more than 30,000 words fly among them as they process events through their personal lenses. Each tries to convince the others of his own point of view. Despite the fierce, often vicious campaign raging around them, their conversation feels respectful, even productive. And then election day. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her. The five friends start to analyze the results. Two voted for Clinton, one didn't vote, one voted for a write-in candidate, one, the Exxon lawyer, won't say. The tech entrepreneur from the Bay Area, his name is Buster, is one of the Clinton voters, and he's horrified. To write someone in or to not vote at all is just inexcusable. Even though he's been engaged in an intense conversation with people who see things differently, he's blindsided, thrown off balance. He doesn't know how to understand this country he lives in. And so he withdraws, drops out of the conversation. If all his reasoned arguments have failed to make a dent with his closest friends, people who listen to him and trust him, how could more discussion make a difference? Buster has lost faith in something he's always believed in, the power of debate. He knows he isn't the only one. After the election, normally engaged people are retreating, sunk in despair or denial. Others go on the attack. A divided country divides even more. From both sides, people on the other bank seem like alien beings. But does it have to be this way, he wonders? Can people with different perspectives ever hope to find common ground? Can they come together to work out solutions to the problems they both know need solving? To answer those questions, Buster Benson decides to write a book. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club along with four of our generation's biggest thinkers, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest ideas that are shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, how to disagree productively. Buster Benson, the tech entrepreneur who was so flummoxed by his failure to understand the 2016 election, always thought he was pretty good at managing disagreement. He'd been a product leader at some of the country's most innovative companies, Amazon, Twitter, Slack, and he loved to bring people together with different ideas to argue them out and create something new. But now the country was polarized, even paralyzed, and arguing just seemed to make things worse. What would it take, he wanted to know, to have productive disagreements with people on opposing sides of an issue, working not just to keep from tearing each other to shreds, but to come up with more creative, more effective solutions? And not just in politics, but at home, at work, and online. He gives us his answer in his new book, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. I called him in a studio near his home in Berkeley, California. Well, hello, Buster. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you, too. So let me start by just saying flat out, I love this book. If you if, if you were to see the copy of the book sitting next to me, it's, it looks like an, an old uh, teddy bear or something with coffee stains and, you know, dog-eared. Um, I think it's so important. It's wow. so well-timed. The ideas in this book, I think, are, are critical for our democracy, for mm-hmm. the cohesion of our nation. It's important for business to help us kind of execute more effectively. And also, perhaps most critically, important to wisely navigate our personal relationships. Yeah. Um, so what's the problem you set out to solve with this book? Is it wh- whether it's like a personal challenge or or a, a larger problem that you, that you sort of diagnosed in society as a whole? My initial goal was to survive the 2020 election season. Flippantly enough, you know, I had such a hard time the last time that I was like, I got to do this better next time, otherwise I'm going to die. And so that was my sort of like, how do I actually have productive conversations with people that disagree with me? And how do I do that, you know, in every single venue of my life? And so I think there's often like this conventional wisdom that you should write about what you know. In my case, it was very different. It was like, I had to write about what I didn't know and what I like deeply, deeply desired to know. And that's what sort of sparked this book. Do you think that this is a unique historical moment in which we've collectively lost confidence in our ability to productively disagree? To what extent is this a new problem? I think it's a new environment that we have this problem in. Um, In the past, we could solve most of our problems by just banning or censoring or exiling the bad people. Um, And now we find ourselves in a world where we're all communicating with everyone in the entire globe. So we can't kick people out um, of the conversation. Um, Trying to do so just helps sort them into polarized communities, right? And sort of that's that's what we're seeing right now where we're all still in the conversation together. We're all segregated into different camps of political beliefs, and we're all talking at a, you know, at the at the speed of Twitter and Facebook and all these places where you know anyone can talk to anyone else. So the environment has changed, and the mental tools that we've used in the past to resolve these kinds of problems just doesn't work for these new modern problems where, it, where it's a global conversation. 
Um, we don't have a way to kick people out of the off of the planet. Um, that's causing all kinds of second-order effects. Certainly, many would say that there are these larger forces that have created this moment, these geopolitical forces, the, the social media filter bubbles that are causing us to be more sort of estranged from one another. Um, but you seem to make the case that there are also these fundamental elements of our human nature, right, that, that cause us to want to avoid conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are conflict avoidant um, up to a point. It goes all the way back to pre-human evolution, right, where, you know, the, the natural instincts for survival are fight or flight. Um, and we're going to fight if we, if we think we can win or we're going to run away. Um, and those are the tools that we use to either, you know, jump into the fight and start yelling or withdraw into ourselves and just try to shut it all out. I love this observation that there was a time in our ancestral environment where the cost of disagreeing was potentially exile, mm -hmm. which might mean death. Right. Right. Arguably, maybe people who erred on the side of getting along had a higher survival rate. Mm -hmm. But their costs to sweeping all these disagreements under the rug, right? And is, is this part of the problem we're trying to solve? Yeah. Well, you know, we can avoid arguments, but we have real problems that we need to solve. So avoiding them isn't going to necessarily make them go away. Um, there is a lot of current studies that are sort of bringing to the surface the fact that even in our institutions, like even in, at work or um, in the government, everyone feels like they know things that are wrong and they don't speak up about them, right? Yeah. And the cost of everyone knowing what's wrong, but no one actually saying anything about it is ultimately, you know, the failure of that institution. It's just not efficient. It's not, uh, it doesn't help anyone. And it also means that we have to repress all of this anxiety within ourselves, which then leads us to this whole other sort of secondary effect, which is mental health, like anxiety disorders yep. and resorting to alcohol and drugs and depression and suicide. And all of those numbers are going up. Mm -hmm. um, so no matter what we do with it, we have to address it. We can't just hide it away. So arguments are not, in fact, bad. No. I mean, arguments are an attempt to resolve a disagreement, an attempt to actually, you know, find two pieces of information and try to figure out what do we do with these two things that don't seem to fit together. If that was bad, then we would never solve any problems. So I don't think instinctively we treat it as bad, but rationally we do. We try to, we try to say, oh, we have to end this disagreement. We have to resolve this conflict. Um, we have to keep moving on despite our disagreements. No, what, the better way to frame it, I believe, is along the axis of productive or unproductive. If an argument produces new insight, new connections, um, enjoyment, that kind of stuff, then it's productive, it's actually good. If an argument breaks a relationship or leads to misinformation or a lack of insight, or it actually just makes us anxious and frustrated and, and sort of depressed, then that's unproductive, that's bad. Um, I think that's a better way to think about whether or not we should seek them out. Uh, we should seek out the good kind and we should try to turn the bad kind into the good kind. And, and so misconception number two is that arguments actually change minds. <laughs> yes. That's a little humbling. Um, <laughs> and yet we all know this, right? We all know that part of the reason why we don't get into arguments with each other, you know, at the you know Thanksgiving table are because we're going to fight about this and no one's going to change their mind. No one's going to you know, end up changing anything. So, what, so it's futile, right? But actually, that's a limited way to think about it. Um, people do change, you know. But you have to invite them to that conversation. Um, you know, we can't change people's minds, but we can change our own minds. You know, whenever you change your own mind, it means that you've gotten smarter. You've gotten, you know, you've learned a little bit more about the world. Maybe it's 
led to some kind of growth of some kind. So even if it's just you changing, that's a positive outcome. Once you think of it that way, you realize how hard it is to change your own mind. So if that's hard, it's going to be hundreds of times harder to change someone else's mind. But when we try, we end up using all these bad strategies to do that and then end up failing. Um, the reason I call it a misconception is because we have this false belief that it's possible to change people's minds. We then create strategies to do so, and then we fail, which actually makes it worse for the outcomes of everyone involved. The metaphor that I love in the book uh, that suggests that there might be some small hope of changing somebody else's mind over a long period of time is that, is that changing yeah. someone's mind is not like moving a boulder. It's like moving a pile of rocks from yeah. one place to another over mm-hmm. a sustained period of time, which strikes me as, as quite true. Yeah, and the reason I love that metaphor is because, hey, let's say that we did just have to transport a bunch of boulders. The first thing you would do is you would sort of accept that it's going to take time. It's going to take time for us to do this task. The second thing that it actually sort of brings to mind is the fact that we have to get along while we're doing this. We have to do this together. Um, and it means that some of the boulders in my pile are going to move and some of the boulders in your pile are going to move. And we have to get along. We have to work for a day, come back to it the next day, come back to it the next day, come back to it the next day or the next week or the next month. That that implies a relationship and it implies some kind of you know uh, respect for one another. And uh, I think if we accept that part, then we can we can actually go about this task in a completely different way. And then the third misconception is that arguments end, which once again, once again, some could read as not being wildly (laughs) optimistic about the outcomes of of productive disagreement. But uh, Mm -hmm. so your point is that we should not expect that our arguments will end. Yeah. I mean, can we think of any that have? (laughs) Um, One of my favorite questions is to ask people who've been married or people who've been friends for a long time. What's an argument that you have over and over again? Because it always brings up something that is both like uh, tinged with resentment and cynicism and at the same time, like sort of joyful and exciting um, and it bonds you. Um, The things that we actually end up arguing about aren't resolved. What you end up doing is finding ways to live and integrate those disagreements into your relationship. And if they make your relationship stronger – they're actually really great. I have a number of friendships that are, you know, at their core is some kind of ongoing disagreement that we have. And my marriage with my wife is likewise the same. Like we argue about the same things. We just have to find ways to argue about them in a way that brings us closer together, makes us more excited about each other. Because that's where the emotion comes from. That's where the heat, the heat that comes from arguments is also a heat that can bind relationships together. In researching his book, Buster started collecting these ongoing disagreements that couples have. They can seem like they're about the most trivial things, like one couple's been arguing for years about whether it's okay to drink a glass of water that's been sitting out for a few days. So Buster put that question to a larger group, and their answers weren't just different. Their reactions were also surprisingly strong. I just found it so fascinating because it does tap into that... um, Like, if you don't like drinking dirty water, it taps into that feeling of disgust and sort of illness and sickness. It's an argument that really taps into our our instincts about nature and about our environment. So that's why I think it was interesting to talk about, because we can argue about everything. And the fun thing about this was that it could get really heated without becoming personal in the way that some of the more political conversations later on in the book will. Now, we we can actually sit down and talk to people that are on both sides and be friends. Buster says on the surface it's a low-stakes argument, but lurking underneath are some big anxieties. 
On the pro-drink side, it seemed wasteful and irresponsible to pour the water down the sink. People said things like, you're part of the reason we're destroying our planet. On the anti-drink side, some said they felt sick just thinking about drinking old water. You know, it's, it's common practice these days to talk about being triggered, right? But we, what we don't do is think about what triggered us, right? I have this sort of one to five rating scale where if something makes me anxious, I'll think back and like, okay, well, what actually made me anxious? Because it always ties back to some kind of core value or belief or principle that I have that is threatened. And by examining the core belief that's threatened, we can actually pivot from there and sort of open the conversation from, is that core value truly threatened? Does this person actually want to threaten it? Are they even aware of the fact that this is how I'm interpreting it? This is like a, a doorway or a signpost to something that we think is really important. And it's really good to know what you think is important. And it's, it helps you understand yourself, helps you understand others um, to sort of examine that. So that's a beginning. If we can recognize what's triggering our strong reactions, we can start to take some control over them. But how do we get to the next step, to Buster's goal of fostering productive disagreements? He has a plan for that. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. It's a classic parental screw-up. It's morning, and a couple suddenly realizes that it's a school holiday. They'd completely forgotten. The dad has to get to work, and the mom has important errands to run. Their eight-year-old son has no place to go. The mom proposes that the dad go to work late. It's not like he'll get fired, and it's just for a few hours. The dad has a better idea. Their son can stay home alone. The boy's mother does not see this as an acceptable solution. We can't do that, she says. It's against the law. Here is what's running through her head. And so the uh, question is, uh, should this lady who left her eight and nine-year-old kids home alone to go get a pizza, should she have been arrested and sent to jail? Well, the I mean, dad uh, doesn't see that at all. He says, I'm pretty sure it's not illegal. And he sets out to prove it. It should be easy enough to find out if it's legal to leave an eight-year-old alone in California. If it's not, problem solved, I go to work. The mom doesn't like where this is going. She says she doesn't see why the dad can't just stay home for an hour or two. She's been on kid duty every time the boy's been sick, and he never has. Buster Benson is embarrassed to admit it, but the dad in this story is him. And in this moment, he's completely missing the point. The argument they're having is not about the law. It's not even about whether he and his wife feel safe leaving their kid at home. It's about whether he's willing to put his family above his own needs. It was a turning point for us because this was the first, I mean, we've gotten in plenty of arguments like this, but this was the first time that I actually saw what the problem was with me. <laughs> um, so I'm focusing on the easy argument. 
And she's focusing on a much bigger issue, which is, am I willing to pitch in for the family? I see this happening a lot where one of the people will latch onto what I call like a conflict of the head, which is the, a conflict that can be resolved with a fact somewhere. Evidence, look up, a, you know, look, mm-hmm. look up some data, sure. look up some report. Even if that is the case and you can actually win that argument, that might not be the argument that the other person is having with you. And most of the heated arguments in a relationship like this, you know, that are ongoing, they aren't a conflict of head. They're more of the conflict of the heart. Like, what are your values? What are your principles? What do you care about? Mm-hmm. Do you value the family? Are you, do you want to be a good father? Like, all these things. And I was completely ignoring that conflict that she was having. And it took me too long to realize that. And actually, the, the act of avoiding that argument proves it to a certain extent. Like, I was, I was refusing to have the conversation she wanted to have. And so yeah. that can be applied to so many situations where somebody, one side is continuing to narrow down the argument to a factual debate, whereas the other person is saying, no, this is not, that's not the issue. The issue is much larger than that. It's something that's about my principles, my values, what I care about. And you can't dispute that with facts. Um, right, right. So. And, there, and this is true in politics and other realms too, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there have been a number of studies that have shown that facts almost never change people's minds. Right. In my uh, sort of studying of this, I, I found very few, like almost zero arguments that were actually at the end of the day about facts. They're always about either the conflict of the head or the conflict of the hands, which I, so the head is like my values and the hands is sort of what's useful, what's practical right now, um, a prediction about a plan or a strategy. So almost all the big arguments in politics and in relationships are about one of those two things. And refusing to acknowledge that is uh, is really counterproductive. So being able to identify first, what is this really about? You know, is the first step of productive disagreement. Like, what am I feeling anxious about? What does the other person feel anxious about? How can we get on the same page about that? So let's talk about the four internal voices, um, mm-hmm. the ways of dealing with conflict. Um, and Because we were just speaking really to one of them, right? The mm-hmm. voice of reason, I guess. There's the voice of power, mm-hmm. which is, and what's the voice of power? The voice of power is the one that we inherited from, you know, our animal selves, right? So the voice of power is, I'm just going to force this to to be over. I, I'm going to force you to, you know, go to your room. You're locked in there. You're grounded. You know, um, I'm just going to end the conversation. I'm going to fire you. I'm going to, you know, whatever the thing is, like, there's not a conversation. There's just a, a swift action. And this is, this makes sense when, you know, even pre-language, you know, if you are trying to resolve a dispute, like, hey, this is my berry or my apple. Um, and the other person's like, no, this is my apple. It's not about a disagreement that involves any reason at all. Um, it's just might is right. You know, all kids are born with this, where it's like mine, mine is the voice of power. Like it's like grabbing it and screaming, right? And then we have the voice of reason, which sounds like the one we'd want to use in an argument, mm-hmm. right? What, what's the problem with, with uh, the voice of reason? So the voice of reason is great if you are in the same institution or the same group. It means that there's some kind of rule system that has been evolved to resolve disputes largely. Like, you know, if you're in the you're in the institution of science, you can just resort to the scientific method. If you're in the, the institution of the law, you can appeal, you can go to court. When you both agree that the court system or the scientific method is the way to resolve a dispute, you can. The problem is that we apply that sort of idea across institutions or across groups. So if I believe that science is the authority on the truth and you believe that religion is, um, we can't actually have a reasonable debate about this until we both trust the same source somehow. And ultimately, it comes down to 
if there is a dispute that escalates and escalates and escalates, it's going to revert back to the voice of power. At, at some point, it's going to be, okay, well, you're just kicked out of our company or country or whatever it happens to be uh, because you refuse to acknowledge my source of truth. At that sense, it's like it's a more evolved voice of power. I believe it's a slightly controversial take on this, but it just doesn't work when you're talking to people outside of your group. And the fact that we really believe that we, it should work mm -hmm. that way is part yeah. of the problem. Yeah. So that brings us to the, the third internal voice, which is the voice of avoidance, which is my favorite. This is my go-to. <laughs> yes. <lately>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Avoid conflict and hope it goes away. Yeah. It is probably the most common uh, uh, strategy at the moment. Like since writing this book, I have been seeking out disagreements in different venues and you'll be surprised. Like, you know, most people think that we're just all arguing with each other all the time. No, most of the time we're just avoiding arguing with each other. Um, and sort of resenting it. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I, w I really think it's important for us to address that the voice of avoidance is dominant in our culture right now, and it's not healthy necessarily. I think it's actually, it's not entirely unhealthy. It actually points us in the direction that we need to go, which is that, hey, reason and power aren't working for us. So I'm not going to choose either one. But I think it doesn't go as far as it should, which is that, what, what else can we do? What's missing? What, what, what can we do that's something other than the voice of power and the voice of reason. And to that sense, I feel like it's a good indicator that we're ready to shift. That's interesting. So there's almost, as you describe it, a sequence to these voices. So we have power, we have reason, we have avoidance, which maybe each in, in the right circumstance can be somewhat effective, Yeah. but none work as well as we'd like. And that brings us to the voice of possibility. Yeah. Basically, the premise of my book is that we should start listening to this voice of possibility, which is when you're stuck, when you're the most frustrated with an argument or a disagreement, ask yourself, what am I missing? And what else is possible than the things that we've been considering? Because this is a blind spot in a lot of the ways we think. Most of the time when we are in a disagreement, we're really tense, we're anxious, and our, our goal is to shut it down, right? We want to resolve this. But the voice of possibility works by really stepping into the anxiety, the ambiguity of the conversation and saying like, okay, we're lost. Let's just accept that and start looking around. And what else is around here that we've been missing because we've had these blinders on? At first, it feels like it's a admission of like nihilism or just defeat because you're saying like, I don't know, I don't have the answer. But at the same time, it can bring this sort of calming effect when you can say like, okay, well, we don't have the answer here. What are we missing? What else can we look at? And it sort of brings this curiosity back into the debate which is very lacking in a lot of the more polarized conversations. Um, so that's my hope is that we can use this last voice of possibility to shift out of avoidance back into an engaged discussion. What do we gain as individuals? And maybe you could look at like what you've gained in your own process through writing this book. What do we gain by learning to disagree better? Yeah, this is one of the answers that I was surprised by um, after sort of going into it because I didn't realize how much of the world I had closed off for myself just by avoiding all of these arguments everywhere. So by thinking about them as tools to sort of build insight, build connection, and have enjoyment, you start seeing that there's all this, all these parts of the world, all these people you can talk to, all these topics you can wade into with all kinds of rich and interesting insights available 
that we had just closed off. It's sort of like you're in this magical palace and you just locked all the doors, right? So I, I think one of the biggest sort of takeaways from learning to enjoy disagreement and be sort of seek out the productive kind is that the world just feels bigger. You know, more people are accessible to you, more ideas can be explored, more things will make sense ultimately. You also say that we should ask questions that invite surprising answers. I think the list of questions that you share or some examples of some of the range of questions that you recommend is one of the most kind of actionable, useful tools in the book, right? I think people often ask the wrong yeah. kinds of questions. Yeah, we ask leading questions all the time. Um, we're, we're trying to trap them into the wrong answer, right? So yeah, I think coming up with a way to invite people in and then asking them questions, you know, how did you form this belief? We're like, you have no idea what the answer to that might be. But whatever they say, it's going to add a lot of information to your mental model for them, to the argument. You're going to understand them better. So find those questions where no matter what they say, you'll be surprised. You know, that also, incidentally, is a way to sort of build connection and trust with that person because it actually shows that you're interested in their answer when you're only asking them questions in order to use their answer against them, that's not an act of goodwill, good faith. And it shows that you actually don't care what they think. Instead, Buster says, ask questions like, imagine a world where this is no longer a problem. How did we get there? Or what would have to be true for you to change your mind about this? Because those sorts of questions aren't about winning or losing or scoring points. They're about finding solutions. And they're useful not just in our work and our relationships, but also out in the broader world. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. It's one thing to welcome disagreements into our relationships or at work where we really want to get along and to get things done. But what about those big, ugly, polarizing debates that split our society in two? Abortion, immigration, guns. We've been over these issues so many times, we already know what the other side's going to say. But Buster Benson says, we really don't. One of his basic principles is, speak for yourself. Don't try to guess what others think. It's impossible to have a conversation in most venues without somehow labeling a group of people that are you know, in your outgroup of some sort, and then implying their intentions and their their reasons for doing things and their actions onto them and projecting that stuff onto them. 
and then condemning them for having those thoughts in the first place. And then sort of like running this whole jury in your head of like imagining what they're thinking and then putting them on trial, saying that they're guilty, and then using that to justify your action against them. If you only speak from your own heart, from your own experience, and then you, anytime you want to say, oh, all of the Republicans or all of the Trump supporters or all of the progressive people, whoever they happen to be, are like this and they think this, instead of saying that, invite someone in that has that perspective and ask them what they think. This is, you know, the healing process of polarity, I think, where instead of projecting onto people, invite people in. Then you can hear from them directly. And that's going to be a much richer conversation because they can actually respond to you. Whereas if you're only projecting and speculating onto a cloud of people, they can never answer. And they're going to live up to your worst assumptions about them. Buster wanted to live that advice in his own life. So he set out to try to foster a productive disagreement about guns, bringing together people with a range of views. It's been in the news a lot. You know, there's been a lot of discussion of you know, what to do with all the mass shootings happening, all the violence that's erupting around the world and in our country, in our schools, everywhere. Um, so it's a very emotional topic. So jumping headlong in, I was like, okay, let's do this. And to be honest, you know, I tried three or four experiments before that all failed. So I tried to do this online on Facebook as a group. I try to do this in you know text messages. I try to do it as sort of a distributed community discussion. The last one, the fourth experiment that I did was just to invite people into my house and to eat dinner with us and have a potluck and discuss guns and sort of see where it went. And that was the time that it's like, oh wait, okay, this was the answer. So part of the message I believe is just try different things until something clicks. But the other one is that you know food and that table are really deep cultural symbols that go way back in our history as tools for collaboration and reconciliation and friendship and uh, all these things that you know we need around a discussion. So it, did, it made sense in hindsight that, oh yeah, the dinner table is, is a great place to, to have disagreements. Historically, there's just so many examples of you know, the Knights of the Round Table kinds of stories where you know, sharing food, breaking bread, all of these things are, they're symbols in our culture, but it might even go as far as like being hardwired into us on some deep level around like, yeah, I build trust mm -hmm. by sharing bread. Like mm -hmm. that's, how I, that's how I build trust. Part of what's also happening there is building arguments together, which mm -hmm. is another point of yours, right? That you come at it thinking broadly about the desired end game. I mean, not just jumping into kind of the current debates around specific gun control policies, but rather like, hey, let's collectively try to solve this problem together. Let's step back and see what common outcomes we can all agree on. Right. And then realize how little we know about <laughs> everything that's going on. Um, yeah. So that was the that was the framing of it was, you know, after sort of sharing our personal stories with one another about like, what's our relationship with guns? We had a couple of people that had guns. One person was, you know, a previous member of the NRA. I had a bunch of assault rifles. And so we were all built that trust in the first sort of half of the dinner. And then the second half of the dinner, we broke up into small groups and said like, okay, well, let's each come up with a proposal for how to solve gun violence in the country on a 20-year scale. The twist to this exercise, which I think is um, really important, was expect to come back to the table, share it, and have everybody else tear it apart. And I use the metaphor of the monkey's paw, where there's this funny fairy tale about like making a wish with the monkey's paw and how the monkey's paw will grant it, but then sort of twist it and make you regret it. And that was a fun way to frame, like, okay, expect it to be torn apart, 
in a sort of fun way. Like we're just going to make the worst thing happen just to help us get over that blind spot around, you know, the, the overconfidence in our, anytime you build a proposal, you just want it to sound good, but you have to also address the weak points and someone has to bring that up and having a diverse group of people at the table, having people that have different experiences, all these things help reveal the blind spots. And so if you can make that process part of the argument, then you're more likely to actually address the edge cases, the loopholes in your argument and lose a little bit of that overconfidence. So when you think about some of the biggest problems that we're collectively facing, let's say like our challenges with healthcare, challenges with the environment, global warming, mm-hmm. challenges with our education system or with you know, justice uh, mm-hmm. reform. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the disagreement potluck model offers some potential solutions for how, how we can address some of those issues together? Yeah. So one of the first things we need to do is accept that it's complicated, right? One of the first things that really help in these, I think with these examples in the book, I sort of repeat this over and over again, is you come into gun control debate with a very simplistic understanding of the problem. Come into immigration debate with a very simplistic understanding of the problem. And you come away with a much more complicated, nuanced sort of, wow, that's that's really hard sort of understanding. And that's the kind of process that I think we need to go through collectively as a country. If we want to have a conversation about immigration or climate change or income inequality or any other kinds of like sexual harassment or all these things that are happening, we have to first shed some of our simplistic us versus them mentality and walk into it with like, okay, let's complicate this narrative. I want to feel how hard this is going to be so that when I start contributing, I don't just put duct tape over it and assume that a simple cure is going to make things better. Because part of the problem here is that we've been band-aiding over problems instead of trying to solve the the root cause. You know, we declare success way before it actually happens. So we we have to accept that racism is complicated. That you know, all these things that are happening are really complicated. We can't fix them overnight. This argument's not going to end. You know, a lot of these arguments have been going on for hundreds of years, and they're not going to stop. So. Let's just get settled <laughs> um, and start stitching it together one person at a time. I think it's a multi-step. Like there's a one thing we can do and then a second order effect and a third order effect that's going to be needed. But I do think that ultimately the thing we need to do now is learn how to talk to each other because we're not actually trying to solve climate change. All we're doing is talking about how evil the other side is for not believing what we believe. And that's not actually going to fix the problem. Yeah, it's amazing how on almost every major issue you think of, there is a surface-level kind of binary distortion mm-hmm. of the argument that is what everybody's focused on, right? With global warming, it's, it, we either have an imminent self-inflicted apocalypse or we have a scientific fraud. You know, mm-hmm. like With healthcare, it's either free market or single payer. But in almost every one of these cases, it strikes me that you can back up, and part of what you've kind of described in this book is you can back up, find the common end game that we can all agree is desirable yeah and then build arguments together in neutral spaces um that uh and and i have to think in the best moments of our political system Mm -hmm. you know when you have bipartisanship something like that you know happens yeah yeah i think it's it was sort of like the ideals that our democracy was founded on and we just need to, to embody those a little bit it's hard, you know, it's hard because we don't have an actual tangible memory of, of that ourselves. 
but we can build that as well. Like that's why I think that building that tangible memory of like, what does it feel like to be bipartisan or we can build that at the, our dinner tables or in our you know offices or anywhere that we are with our, our friends and family. And then we can use that memory of like, okay, this is what it's like to sort of consider both sides of a of an issue and work towards a problem in collaboration. And then we can project that onto our government and expect that from our government. And the people in government can themselves remember what it's like. But until we sort of can actually physically feel what that feels like, you know, it's really hard to imagine it happening. Well, Buster, though, though it's slightly discouraging to learn that I will never change my wife's mind and our <laughs> arguments will last forever. Uh, I find this uh, uh quite hopeful and encouraging and I think there's some great learnings in your new book and, and so thank you so much for coming on the Next Big Idea podcast and, and sharing it with us. Thank you. It was a joy. If you'd like to share your thoughts about productive disagreement and other ideas we discuss on this podcast, join us at nextbigideaclub.com. Use the promo code PODCAST for 10% off the cost of a subscription. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. I'm Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Judy Campbell. Sound design is by David Grabowski. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnat. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.